You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimao of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Hey, what is up, good people? I hope you are safe wherever this is reaching your ears and thank you so much for tuning into the podcast today i know there's a lot of other things you could be checking out right now but you chose a good one this episode was a ton of fun i'll keep this intro short and sweet but i wanted to remind you folks if you like the show and you'd like to support it with your gear buying habits there's two really easy ways that you can do that one is by going to tonemob.com sweetwater for any of your new gear purchasing needs over there at Sweetwater. Everything you see suggested there, I have either had personal experience with, uh, actually a lot of it I own, or it's very similar to something that I do own. But most of it I actually own myself. Anyway, you don't have to buy those specific things, but if you do your shopping through that link, anything you do comes back and helps keep the lights on around here. Similarly, if your tastes lean to the more eclectic and more vintage, and you need to reach out into the used market, ToneMob.com slash Reverb is a great way to do that as well. And anything you purchase through either of those links will come back and help the show a little bit. It won't cost you any extra or anything like that. So again, those links are ToneMob.com slash Sweetwater and ToneMob.com slash Reverb. Okay, let's get right into this episode. Let's not delay. This is a really fun one. Here we go. Boom. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Tone Mob Podcast, the show about guitar tone and the people behind it. I'm your host, Blake Wyland, and with me today, I have Zambriki Lee from Magic Giant. What's going on, dude? Hey, how are you, man? You know, hanging in there. That's doing doing better than lots of other people, so I can't complain. I could complain, awesome. but it would be a bad thing to do because it's all first world problems. <laughs> I know. I think right now a lot of what's going on is a mixture of uh, humility and complaining. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody. It's like people go from like feeling sorry for themselves and then going through the, the, uh, the train of thought of like realizing what, what you have. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a, a big one for me is like realizing that like, I don't have a, a massive plot of land or anything, but I got a, a all right, you know, 10,000 square foot lot. And I just think about people in New York and I'm like, Oh, I'm good. Like, I'm good. Like, I, I got good. space. I can stretch out. I'm fine. You know? Exactly. That's great. But anyway, without del delving into all that, nobody wants to hear about that right now. That's not what they're here for. Nobody. nobody. Exactly. Tell me your story, man. I checked out the band after, you know, management reached out and everything. And I was like, man, these guys, these guys are really good. That's not my, like, normal go-to thing, but it's like a blend of rock with like this super hooky stuff i really liked it i was very impressed but uh tell me more about your backstory when you started playing and how you ended up in the band and all that jazz sure so uh, i'm originally from new jersey uh though now i'm in california and um 
you know, grew up in the Asbury Park area, which is the home of Bruce Springsteen. And I feel like Bruce Springsteen was kind of like a shadow over the whole Jersey Shore area as far as like how much passion you could have for something. And there was a Jersey pride element to it that I kind of never really connected with because New Jersey is also a very kind of caustic, sarcastic place. And there's a lot of beautiful people there and a lot of friendly people there, but it's also, it's kind of a hard place in a lot of ways, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, so I grew up in that kind of in the shadow of Bruce Springsteen and I didn't come from a musical family, uh, or anything like that. I was interested, you know, mildly in music. Um, and then when I was about 12 or between 12 and 13, um, one summer I was, uh, on a little like backyard camping thing with a, fr- with a group of friends. And we took a, we took a ride to, to grab some food. And along the way of the ride, I got hit by a car while riding my bicycle and, uh, was in a coma, woke up in the hospital, had lost my sense of smell, was completely disoriented and then was brought home to, you know, for the recovery process and was out of school and had this honestly, seriously isolation time. That's really fuzzy to me because I was a young and B uh, my brain had hemorrhage and I was really banged up. But in, uh, in the, in the couple of days following coming home from the hospital, um, I taught myself how to play the violin. There was a violin, uh, at my house. It was like a sister's friend kind of cousin figure, um, had been having started taking lessons and left her violin there. And I was, I was home to my, to my own devices, my sisters were at school. My parents were at work and it was just me there. And I, I picked up the violin and, and kind of started working, working through it and just messing around with it. And within a few minutes I could do the vibrato and some of the basics of it. So really that, that two, three months after, after the accident is really when I, when I learned how to play music, uh, I started with violin and guitar really around the same time. Mm-hmm. And I was super into the Beatles. My, my older sister was like a Beatles maniac. So, uh, so I'm and also green day and she had a, oh, and sublime and she had a wide range, but like the Beatles was pretty big as far as, uh, between my, me and my sisters. So I got this book called, uh, Beatles complete scores, which was basically all the Beatles songs laid out where it showed you what the guitar was doing, what the second guitar was doing, what the bass was doing, what all the strings were doing, what all the drums, I mean, and I didn't know really what any of the stuff meant because I didn't know how to read music, but you could just see it all laid out on the page. And it kind of made me realize like, wow, when you listen to a rock and roll song, it's like way more complicated than you think. Right? It sounds like it's just a little rhythm and a little lyric, but when you see it all laid out like that in a, in a classical score form, it, you can kind of start getting a handle on how it pieces together. So, uh, I used to do this thing where I put, and you know, I, I, I had, it was, it was kind of like an escape rat crew in New Jersey. So it was like me and my skateboarder friends, we were 12, 13, you know, we'd be throwing toilet paper rolls and, <laughs> you know, doing, uh, doing rail slides on the, on the bank, you know, steps and just kind of like hanging out in the woods and just doing the whole New Jersey is a pretty suburban area, but it's also split up kind of by woodsy areas. So it's like a bunch of pent up kids that have nowhere to go, but escape to the woods. So they're like the woods was our, our sanctuary in some way. And, um, and I had a friend who had a guitar in his garage that had a broken neck and that his parents were actually, I was, I went to his house and it was actually in his trash out in front of his house. And I was like, can I have his guitar? So he gave me the guitar. I had another friend whose uncle played the banjo. He had one in his garage. So I started asking 
uh, all of my skater friends, like if they had any instruments and the guitar, I didn't really know how to repair, repair correctly, but I did glue it together and it just gave it this like really high action, but it worked. And I had like a little like harmony, uh, bass guitar that was like a half size thing that people just had around. So I used to put the instruments in a, in a circle, like a semicircle around me. And then I would just go from instrument to instrument playing for like 15, 20 minutes, each one. And a lot of times I actually play the same song on each instrument and just try to figure it out. So over that, you know, couple of months before I went back to school, I went through the Beatles complete score and, you know, I could, I, I learned how to play on the guitar, a lot of the, a lot of the chords and strumming for it, just basically off of that book. And then on violin, I was, you know, I was playing like Mike Tyson's punch out and there was this musical interlude in between when you, you know, whatever, lost or won the round. And then the next time it came, and there would be this song. Little, yes. and there's this little interlude where the guys like run around the lake or whatever. And then there's like, dan, 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 you know, it's like this kind of, do, 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 do. <laughs> yes, yes. yeah, I know. Right? So, so I, I figured that song out on every instrument that I could get my hands on. And, you know, in, in that time, the, the, the hardest thing, that was stacked against me was a, I didn't have a, a tuner that was good for at the beginning and mm-hmm. it was before tuner apps. So just like getting these instruments in the ballpark was, was an early struggle and, you know, and Beatles records are all slightly out of tune. A lot of times what they would do, I didn't know this at the time, but they will like in, for instance, in the Beatles song yesterday, uh, they would change the pitch of after they recorded the whole thing, they would change the pitch of it to make Paul sound younger because he was like maybe late twenties and they were trying to get him to sound, you know, 18 or something like that. I didn't know that. So, so they did it a lot on Beatles records. And I think a lot of records maybe in that era, that's why sometimes if you try to play to an old record, it's like, you know, Paul McCartney's in the Kia F you're in the Kia F, but it just doesn't match. So I remember having this Beatles scores book and then listening to the, to the record and being like, why doesn't it match? Why not? And, and really not until years later realizing that's actually what it was. Cause there were some things that matched the book and some things that didn't. So, so I spent a lot of time with the Beatles, with a head injury and with a, a, a variety of different instruments. And when I, when I emerged out of my medical slumber isolation, I could play, you know, I, I joined the orchestra. I started playing violin and I remember the first day of walking in, I was really into, you know, rock and roll. I, I had, I was in a classic rock thing when I was like 12, 13. So for me, it was like Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, um, all that kind of stuff. You know, uh, I had a friend who liked Grateful Dead. I wasn't into the Grateful Dead, but I liked their t-shirts. So I had some like, Grateful Dead shirts <laughs> and I was just kind of in this like, you know, uh, rock hippie kind of stylistic thing. And I remember walking into orchestra after, uh, after the accident, after learning how to play and, and be, and everyone else there was like a bunch of like very, you know, it was like, it was like basically a bunch of like super smart Asian kids who started learning when they were two years old and then like a couple other people. And then it was like me in a Grateful Dead shirt. And I came in and I kind of just smoked everybody because I didn't, I hadn't taken lessons, but I, but I had a tone. There was something like in the, especially in the violin specifically with vibrato, and the tone, that's kind of this, the soul of the instrument. Like you can play the notes correctly and you can play it in the right rhythm. But if you have a tone, then that's what people react to. And I think the same thing is true on guitar. And that's why, you know, I think sometimes when people start playing the guitar, 
they're not getting a good tone because they're not maybe they're not pushing down hard enough in the strings or they're holding the pick too tight and they're just kind of beating the heck out of it you know and mm-hmm. that took some time to get through that that uh beating the heck out of the instrument thing and, and finding the tone of the of the instrument in your fingers rather than through an amplifier or kind of through effects or some of the things that you can massage it. I think that's why some of the great guitar players, you know, they don't have crazy rigs, you know, I mean, that's one element of it. And there's definitely a lot of examples of that. And that's its own artistry, like the edge and in U2. And there's other examples of guys that if you took away those, that, that, that pedal board and that, and the manipulations they're doing electronically is, is innately part of their sound. But I think there is an element of, of if you can self-discover at the beginning and, and find the tone with just the instrument before you ever have the opportunity to alter that sound, I think that can be really important. So I spent a lot of time just with acoustic instruments when I first started and just myself and, and working it all out. Do you think that, you know, I mean, you, having it stem from a car crash is a pretty unique perspective on this. Do you think that the instruments helped in the healing process. Yeah, I hear a lot of, you know, talk about that, but you have direct experience with it. Yeah. I think a lot of it is, is like, is channeling what's, what's happening. You know, it's like, if you're going through something and you have, and you have nowhere to take it, then it kind of just maybe can just suffer inside of you. But because I was on my own little mission to, to learn music and I really wanted to write, and I really wanted to play. I think it was just like the grandest distraction in the world. And for me, the power of it, you know, I don't come from a musical family. Um, you know, uh, my, my direct family has a lot of structure struggles with addiction, um, both alcohol and, and harder drugs. So I was in this kind of tumultuous situation anyway. And then I had this accident. So it added this level of, of almost a surreal to me as a kid, it was seemed almost surreal and magical. Like all of a sudden I was like, bopped on the head and almost died and nothing really mattered. And for me, music was the thing that was mine. That was the thing that I created for myself. That was not, you know, thrust upon me. Like some of my friends were taking, who had to take piano lessons or had to do this or that. It was just my own self-discovery. So for me, it was a way to deal with kind of the pain I was going through. And it was also a way for me to not that I was thinking about it in the, in the way of like reinventing myself, but it was almost like, it seemed like I had this little etch-a-sketch of a life built up. And then when I was in the accident, the whole etch-a-sketch got shaken up. And then I had the opportunity to, to just start over. And when I started over, it was not as like a dumb skateboarder kid, um, which I still kind of was that it was more of like as a writer artist, as a musician, that was, that was how I identified myself like after that and for the rest of my life. That is, that is really cool. It's a magical way of spinning something very negative into something extremely positive. So that's pretty impressive that you were able to do it at such a young age. You know, a lot of people would, you know, kind of take it into a negative, even an even further negative direction, I think. So it's nice that you were able to channel it that way. Thank you. Yeah. I can remember when I was doing like the semicircle of, of playing around you know, I would play, I would play it for, I play the, I played the riff on the, on the violin, figured out on the guitar. And then I had another friend whose parents were giving away a piano. So, um, I asked him if I could have it. He, his, his dad helped bring it over to the house. And we, you know, I grew up in a, I grew up in New Jersey in a one bed, you know, we had one bed, three bath, 
little little rancho house. And it was me, my mom, and then I have two sisters. It was basically like squishing, you know, four people into a into a three person situation. So it was tight, man. You couldn't get bathroom time. It was just, you know, it was a tight situation. But I but I wheeled this piano up the front steps. We put it on its side and slid it down the carpet. And I just moved it into my bedroom. I had to throw away my bed frame, put the bed mattress on the floor to make room for it. So I just had this like semicircle of violin, guitar, banjo, and a, the half size bass. And then I had uh, a stand up piano in there. And I just had a bed on the floor. So from the age, you know, 13, basically until, you know, I left, I got out of high school or left my parents' home. That was kind of like what I did when I was there is I would just sit in a circle and just play these instruments kind of one at a time around and around. And it was, it was the most satisfying, you know, experience at that time. I also, um, because I had all these broken instruments and I was, and you know, we didn't, we we didn't have the money to, to invest in like the whole kind of rig or anything. So it was pretty piecemeal. So I started just gluing guitars together and, um, so someone at my, a teacher at my high school kind of, uh, told her what I was, that I was doing it. And she actually, uh, had a connection with a, a luthier, someone who worked on wood instruments. So I actually got an apprenticeship, um, in that time as well, when I think it was 14 or 15 at the time. And, um, I got an apprenticeship at a, at a violin shop and it was this old Hungarian guy. And, you know, I didn't have a father figure. So I think partially I was just kind of drawn to any kind of male father figure. So I spent, you know, a couple of years with this guy, basically carving bridges, gluing together broken cellos and violins. I was only allowed to do kind of what he considered the lower brow of, of instrument repair, which was like basic gluing and carving. But I, I really learned patience through that time because to carve the, to carve a, there's a, there's this little block in a, a a violin bow that holds the horsehair together Mm -hmm. and to carve that block in a way that it actually stays in the same spot when you put the hair in there. I mean, it took me like 35 to 50 little blocks before I could carve one that actually fit correctly in there. And at the beginning, I remember being super pissed because I was like a kid and I was like, this is so annoying. Um, and then eventually I kind of got it and it kind of clicked. So I think in that time period, it was, I both learned how to play and then through, through, repairing the instruments kind of learn the patience to, to work on it. So those things, those two things together, I think really helped me. And, um, and, and also being a, you know, magic giant is a, is a touring band, you know, and being on the road and be able to fix people's guitars, my guitar, my violin, if something breaks, it's actually been a really good skill to have because even our guitar techs and other people that are on our road crew, they, they know how to make the show work, but they don't necessarily know how to like prepare a, you know, a, a hollow body like ES-335 with a floating bridge if like the whole side is crushed in. Right, um, right. But I can do it, you know? I can, I can do it. It's not going to be the prettiest thing in the world, but I'll get the thing playing by the next night, you know? That's, that's incredibly valuable. There's not a lot of bands that have that ability built in, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's fun. Sometimes, we've actually been at music festivals and like hanging with other bands. Um, and then just talking to them and they're like, yeah, dude, my guitar is broken. I've actually had the, like the, the pleasure to like be at a music festival and then talk to one of their musicians about how they're like, their guitar is all jacked up. And I'm like, well, let's just go check it out. And then, you know, next thing you know, it's like a huddle of like five musicians backstage, like all huddled around a guitar, almost like 
guys who stand around if you, if you got there's like a flat tire on the side of the road, right. you know, and getting <laughs> five guys scratching their head, deciding how the best way to take off a lug nut. So we get to have, you know, that experience backstage and it's, it's been really cool. So I've been able to, um, you know, help out other musicians too, because it's really hard to find when you're, when you're on tour, like, you know, Magic Giant got off the road, um, on March 7th. And we were supposed to go back out April 1st. We were on a two month tour with American authors. And, um, you know, we played over the course of two and a half months, um, Magic Giant, because we had a song we have, and we still do have the same song uh, as that radio. It's called Disaster Party. So we were doing our show every night. We do a VIP and then, um, we would do a radio show every day, like in the morning, we'd go to a radio station. So it's like when you're doing three shows a night, like there's just no way to find someone to work on your guitar. Uh, unless you're just bringing a guitar repair guy with you, you know, because we have a guitar tech, but he's, you know, that's not his job to like fix all of our instruments. You know, it's his job to make sure the show show goes off, you know, mm-hmm, for sure. So, so, uh, so it's, it's really coming handy. So let's get into the band a little bit. When did you get started with the band or what was your first band? I'm imagining this wasn't your first band. So I, I, my first band, I actually got started my first professional foray into the music business was as a singer songwriter. And, um, I had a, I was in New Jersey and then, um, I was playing a show at the stone pony, which, uh, is this kind of like heralded. It's an, it's one of like the house that Bruce built kind of mm-hmm. things on the East coast. And I was just sitting with a band and, uh, these two guys from Nashville were there and, uh, and they said, Hey man, you, you play great. Uh, we want to hire you. Like we want to, we want, we think you could really help us out with, uh, with our, what we're doing down in Nashville. And it was because I was a multi-instrumentalist. I played guitar, but I also play violin, um, and different instruments. And I was like, okay, cool. Well, when are you guys going to Nashville? And they're like, well, where we're going tomorrow. So, uh, I went with these guys to Nashville. Um, I met them literally the night before, and they told me their story about they had a little country band and they had a publishing company. So I just went with them and, uh, went with them in Nashville and they ended up being legit. Like they, they set me up with like a little apartment and a little, you know, salary. And, um, and so there I was, I was, I was playing professionally. I had a gig and I was, the house that I moved into was, was right next to the Nashville library. And the National Library has like this CD collection that is incredible. I mean, it has, they have like everything all from the old country just across. I don't know if they still have it there, but, and you can take out like 20 records at a time. So I went down there and when I wasn't working with this band, I was just pulling all these records out of the, out of the National Library and listening to them. And then I really got into, you know, I'd started songwriting. Uh, the first song I wrote, I was 15. Um, so I'd always been writing. And, uh, but I hadn't been totally that serious about writing or playing professionally. Cause I was always kind of, there's always kind of like a side gig, you know, I was just hustling other, other jobs and, and, you know, had the dream of music. So when I went down to Nashville, I really got serious about songwriting. And, uh, after a couple of months of the band, I, I had enough kind of saved where I could go off and do my own thing. So, so I left that group cause I wasn't really into playing country music and I'm still not though. I'm intensely inspired by. Hank Williams, Lubin Brothers, you know, a guitar player, Sam McGee, which is like, he's like, to me, the father of, of finger style guitar, but kind of gets forgotten about. Mm-hmm. But I discovered him at the, I discovered him at the Nashville library, you know, he just grabbed his CD and he was just like this crooked 
toothless old guy on the cover. I was like, I don't know, it's one of 25 CDs I'll grab. So I got super inspired by, um, you know, by folk music and by song and by songwriting. I discovered John Prine and John Hartford, all just from the National Library. So I did a, uh, I, I ended up getting a, I, I left, I left the band and the country band and got a little studio apartment right on music row next to RCA studio B. Oh yeah. And which is where, which is where Elvis did his thing and Roy Orbison. And I befriended the security guard that was there. And, uh, so he started letting me come in there for like as sessions that I would do sessions there at night, like when it was essentially closed and he was just watching the place. So I did a, I did like a singer songwriter record with five songs and it wasn't finished yet, but, uh, I was making a whole lot of noise in the studio apartment. So all my neighbors kind of knew what I was up to. And because it was Nashville, everybody was pretty cool about it. And there was actually a publishing, uh, publishing company on the same floor that I lived on because it was music row. And the, uh, I ran into the publisher in the hallway. He said, he said, Hey, I'm, I'm working with this, uh, this Hollywood film company on a, on a movie and they're accepting songs, uh, for the movie. Do you have anything? And uh, I said, yeah, actually, I got a song. I think it'd be great for it. So I met with the the casting director for the movie, and I just played, uh, played was called, the song's called Airport Goodbye. It's a love song. And I played it for them in the, in the, in like a casting style thing. And they ended up, they, they liked it out of all, a lot of the people they auditioned, they were auditioning, basically they were casting the movie, and they were also trying to cast musicians with songs because it was a live element. So uh, they ended up, uh, they liked what I did. So I was a part of the movie. Uh, the, the, it was called paper heart and, um, it was with Michael, Sarah, Seth Rogen. And I, I performed a song on guitar in the movie. And then, uh, so I had that experience and that's what brought me to California. The first time I ever came to Los Angeles was for the premiere of that movie. So when it came out, I, I went, I went to the premiere and, uh, and I, after the movie was over, I, I came outside and and uh, the Fonz from Happy Days. Uh-huh. Fonz. Oh yeah, I forget his I forget his actual name. But he came up to me and he said, "Hey man, love the song, love the hat." Because I was wearing this like fisherman's hat, kind of quirky hat in the movie. So I just wore it to the premiere. And I was like, "Wow, Ellie's amazing. This is what it's like, you know? The Fonz is supportive." So that was the first time that uh, that I ever had a song that I wrote and played ever used for anything other than just like in a playing it in a, in a venue. And it was the first time that I was able to see how you could write something in your bedroom, make a record in any scrappy way you can, and you could actually do something with it. And then all of a sudden it was like, it was something that was possible to me. So, uh, so I put out the record and, uh, went back to Nashville, pretty much, you know, packed up my stuff and, and moved out to Los Angeles and made the jump. And when I first came out, I uh, had a friend who was doing, uh, uh, the word jingle is kind of diminutive, diminutive but uh, was, it's a composer, but he was doing stuff about, for commercials. So when I first came to Los Angeles, I, I needed to you know, focus on you know, just paying rent and getting it started. So uh, I was working with him and we were doing a whole bunch of composing for commercials. And I was kind of like, all right, well, this is like, I'm going to be in this world. I'm going to be uh, a guy who's at his house with a Pro Tools rig and some cool mics, and I'm going to make music. And that's, 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 that's what I'm going to do. And I was, it was, it was actually really, you know, it, it's, it's a hard gig, you know, you have to mix, produce, write the thing, 
it's all on you and you have like 10 hours. Right. So it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't necessarily like a stress-free life. Uh, but, uh, but that's what I was, that's where I was at at that moment. And, um, I got a call from, from Austin Biznow, who's the singer of Magic Giant. And he had also been in Los Angeles. We actually serendipitously got there at the same time, but didn't meet, uh, until we were both there for like over a year. And I was doing the composing thing and he was, he was there, uh, doing songwriting and pitching, uh, to get cuts by other artists. So he was a singer, he was an artist himself, but he was at, he was at that place where he was like, you know, wanting to get cuts and, uh, and he's, he's incredible. And I was able to kind of, you know, um, get to see him get a couple of these cuts, which has been really great. He had a cut with uh, David Guetta and John Legend. And, uh, I sent backup vocals on it and stuff. So it's like, it was really fun. So, uh, but going back to the first phone call, he, you know, he, he wanted to start a band. He was also working in the music business, but kind of in the, in the shadows of it, which is kind of like being a composer. You know, we were both writing and working, but it was kind of for other people's, you know, other people's means. Like if you just listen to the song, you wouldn't even know who wrote it or nobody cares, you know, right. Katy Perry, John Legend, who cares who wrote it? Doesn't matter. It's a footnote. <laughs> right. It's um, a Katy Perry song at that point. It's a Katy Perry song. Okay. <laughs> who cares? So so, so he called me up and he wanted to, he wanted to, to, to put a band together. And he had asked around, we were both living in the beach towns of, uh, of, of LA. I was in Santa Monica. I think he was in Venice. So he was just asking around like, Hey, do you know anybody who plays guitar, violin? Do you know, I'm looking for a guitar player. I'm looking for a, a violinist. I'm looking for, you know, harmonica player, mandolin. And he was asking around, do you know anybody who plays these instruments? And uh, a mutual friend of ours said, I mean, I know, I know a guy who plays all those instruments. So he called me up um, and, you know, just said, Hey, I want to, I want to, I want to get out there and play. I want to, you know, I want to sing, I want to sing the songs that, that I'm writing. So, so we got together and we kind of did a, a little sh short, little jaunt in the LA club scene and played a couple of shows. No big deal. And then we kind of just went on hiatus because I think he was doing the writing thing. And, and, uh, you know, I was also, uh, producing like some acoustic artists. So we were just kind of, nothing happened, but we just took this like three month like no call, no show situation to each other. And then he got a call from a music festival called, uh, called sweet life. And, uh, they didn't, they had seen one of our, our LA shows and didn't know that like, uh, that it was just kind of, uh, a fun thing that we weren't, I guess, actually pursuing. So they, they offer us to play their music festival. And he, he immediately said, yeah, we'll do it. And then he called me and said, we're getting the band back together. <laughs> so at that point it was like him and I had been the, the steadies and then we had horn players and we had this, this whole kind of smorgasbord thing going on, but him and I were, were the, were the consistence. So, um, we wanted to, make it real, you know? So we wanted to get another member in the band that was going to be a permanent member. And, uh, so we were touring around for, for a while and Austin was at a show in Hollywood and he saw, uh, this guy playing stand-up bass with a curly mustache who was kind of dancing as he played. And he met him after the show. And then he, he came over to my house the next day. He's like, I met this dude last night, which I think is like, would be great for our band. He's got such a cool vibe. 
you know, he's like dancing, he got a curly mustache. I was like, great. So, uh, we, we Googled, uh, we Googled Zhang, uh, Brian Zaghi and, uh, and we found these videos of him like dancing salsa, which we thought was a really interesting kind of left field thing that neither of us knew how to do. And, uh, so he was a bass player who danced salsa. We met up with him and, you know, he was, he was brilliant. So we actually said, Hey, like, do you think you can play guitar? Like we don't really need a bass player. We need, uh, a guitar player. So Zamberki can switch off and also play other instruments. We needed like just solid rhythm, never leaving boom, just, you know, chopping wood. So, and we were like, it's only two more strings. You know, you're playing bass, that's four strings, add two strings. What's the big <laughs> deal? So, so he did it. So he started playing guitar and, um, you know, he's a great guitar player. He's a great, he's, a, he's, he's awesome. So that was kind of the band. And then we came up with a new band name because the band name that Austin and I had been kicking around with was like terrible. So we came up with a band, band name, what Magic Giant. It? What was it? <sighs> I can't tell you, man. Oh man. I have to bear, I'll be burying the SEO after I tell you, man, I don't want to do that. Um, <laughs> just okay. to like, just, it was so bad that one time we were playing a charity event and they would not read the name over the microphone at the event oh. because it was bad. Yeah. So, so it's, and it's a testament to, if there's anybody listening out there who's like trying to start a band, it's a testament to how it's really, really hard to come up with a band name post like internet post like 2015 or 2012 or whenever because everything's taken everybody can just kind of kick off and make a band so we had hundreds of band names many of them terrible and 90 percent of the terrible ones were also taken <laughs> like uh, uh crayola forest right throwing it out there mm -hmm. terrible band name taken hand clap orchestra i kind of like that one taken everything's taken it's insane so uh i've had the very exact same experience so i understand yeah it's crazy and then we had a uh i had a friend's band who after they get signed to their label the label's lawyers went went through it and like found that there was another band so they had to change the name after they got signed it already had a fan base which it just it just was a buzzkill and i don't think they ever really got through it you know um, so we put in that, I think it's important at the, on the front end and it's kind of like any other brand or any other thing you're building, you know, it's like decide kind of what you're about before you start. And part of that is, is your name. So, uh, this, so magic giant came from a Ted talk, uh, with the artist, Peter Tunney, who he was telling a story and he was talking about how he was a, he was fascinated with magic when he was a, when he was a kid and that one of his mentors, this guy, Jonas Salk who uh discovered the cure for polio and was this kind of like really you know luminous luminous figure um and he was telling this whole story about how he was a giant in all these ways and then he showed a picture of, of jonas salk and jonas salk was like a you know five five you know dude like just you know so what we took away from it is you don't have to be big to be a giant so that's kind of our that's kind of was our early mantra so magic giant you don't have to be big to be a giant you can you can be a giant in your own life. You can be a giant in your own family. You can be, you know, it's like we're all the lead characters in our own, you know, so Magic Giant is the amalgamation of of, uh, of, of this TED Talk by, uh, by the artist Peter Tunney. And we have to tell him that story, actually. He came to a music festival we were playing, and, and he didn't, he, he saw the set and, and was talking about it, but he didn't know that, that, that 
we had gotten his band name from him. So it was really kind of cool to be able to tell him that. That's awesome. Yeah. So soon at, so, so soon after we found Zhang, we played a, played a show at uh, a club in Los Angeles, which is called the Bootleg Theater. And, um, and through, through working, uh, you know, in, in music, but not being performers, being live performers, uh, the show had a little, you know, had a little buzz around it and it was like sold out line around the block. And that was our first show they ever played in Los Angeles. And it was like, we got there. It's like, wow, okay, cool. This is like a thing. And, um, after that first couple of shows that we played, um, we ended up also doing a residency there. So we played like every, every week, the same night for a month and then booked out other things. So it gave us a chance to get, um, to get a lot of people to see us in a really short amount of time in some ways, maybe too early because, you know, uh, Austin and I had written probably five songs together at that point. And it was really cool because, you know, we didn't know when I first got that phone call from him, you know, we didn't know that we were going to have writing chemistry and we didn't know that we were going to be able to write all this music together. So at that time we had written like five songs, which was, which was kind of enough to pull off a show, but a little thin for a once a week event uh, or even to tour. Uh, but we just kind of did it. So I think, I think it can go either way. I think sometimes like you could be too precious about your music and wait a really long time to share with the world to the point where maybe the world has changed or maybe you just kind of, you just kind of hung on to it a little bit too long. So you lost the spark and you can also just kind of do it too early where you're underdeveloped. And I think we were just kind of pro enough and we had written five songs that were just good enough where I, I think we were forgiven for uh, maybe our lack of, of polish and finesse. And it was just kind of like, it felt good. So we, um, after those first couple of shows, we uh, got signed to a management company called Red Light. And they, they're a big management company that have a lot of different artists. And when they were signing us, you know, they said, you know, a lot of bands come to us and they, and they want to work with us. And, and, uh, this is Bruce Eskowitz, who's, who's had a red light at the time. And he said, I always tell people like, call me when you got a line around the block. And he said, well, you guys already have a line around the block. So we want to work with you. So I feel like having them believe in us, at, you know, maybe even though it was a little too early on made us be like, okay, man, we got, this is, this is a real thing, you know? And they were, they were really smart as they, they got us a booking agent, uh, like pretty much right away. And, uh, you know, we were so green at the time. Like we didn't know, like all of a sudden we were kind of like in the real biz, you know, like we didn't know any of the terms yet. So like, they're like, okay, so, uh, we're going to get you, we're going to get you an agent. So you just need a TM, uh, an FOH. And then you guys are going to go do this like, little tour and kind of like get a little practice tour. And I remember Austin and I said, yeah, what is a TM? And we Googled TM, nothing came up. We were, we were too embarrassed just to ask like, what's a TM? So finally we asked, and a TM is a tour manager, which like obviously is a tour manager, but that's just, I just tell you that to kind of show where we were, where we were at. It's like, we had been in the music business for years, but we hadn't been like a touring band, you know? So we just didn't know the lingo. So we got a friend to be our TM and uh, we went out and, so after playing like a month of shows in LA, we, we just started touring and, um, we did, you know, West coast all the way up to Portland on the first tour, like, you know, in the van where you're someone's two people sleeping on the ground and 
you know, taking turns driving and RTM was our friend Arden, this, uh, this girl who, you know, is really smart. She's an actress, or, you know, aspiring actress and just really good energy, but had also never, you know, done anything like this before. And, you know, music business is a pretty male centric thing. So on that first tour, her going in and talking to all the venue owners and promoters and all that stuff, it was like, it was a really interesting kind of crash course into, uh, how certain things in the music business are kind of fixed. And we wanted to change that as much as we could. So even since then, we always, when we can, uh, you know, try to have women on our management team, on our touring team, on our merch, everything, you know, because there's no reason why women are not part of the music business. It's just people don't ever want to change kind of the policy on how they do things. So it just becomes, it's this boys club. And we saw it on our, this last tour we did with American authors because, you know, we, we brought, you know, we brought a couple of females from our, from our, you know, from our, our stable of people that we work with. And then it just like, it's just, but it kind of turned into a, a boys club, you know, and it ended up being, you know, by the end of the tour, it was just a bunch of dudes. And I don't know why, you know, it's, it's really interesting. So we always try to promote, um, having females on our, on our team and try to make a conscious effort of it. Because if you don't make a conscious effort of it, a lot of times people will just default into the norm, which is a bunch of bros like hitting the road, which is not that as it's not the ideal for it. It's just, it's just been the way it's been for you know 50 years. Yeah. It's kind of weird. And it's, it's weird that it's been that way. I think the vibe is actively changing though. It seems probably through efforts of bands like yours and the, you know, some of my very favorite, in fact, a lot of my very favorite interviews on this podcast have been women. And so I, I think, I think it's starting to change. I, they bring a different energy it, and that's a good thing. Cause like you said, it gets real broy real quick and it's not it's always real, real quick. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I do think it's, I think it's starting to change, but I think it's gotta be a conscious, it's gotta be a conscious effort. So it's something that we bring up to our team a lot, just because there's not as many women in the industry right now, um, on the touring side of thing and on the studio side, it's just not as common. So if you don't actually put the extra effort into looking for it and, and like making it a priority, you know, you're going to have a, a stack of 40 applications, let's say for a road crew. And like, they might just all be dudes. They probably will all be dudes. So you actually have to kind of look out for it. So we try to, we try to do that. And I think, you know, for other bands, you know, I don't know if they're always thinking about the fact that you actually have to put extra effort. It's not just like, Oh yeah. Well, if, if, a, if, a, if a girl auditions, like, of course we would give it a chance, but it's not just that. It's like, no, you have to ask your team like, like, okay, great. we got these applications. Like get us some female applications like go, go put forth the extra effort to make it a possibility because left to its own devices, like a lot of, a lot of people will just grab the top of the stack and it's going to be a bunch of bros, both on the instrument side and, the, and on the touring side. So I think it's changing, but I think it still needs, I think it needs constant effort and attention, honestly. So we haven't talked about gear at all. <laughs> which is a magic ability that we have on this supposedly gear focused podcast. But, um, yeah. So 
what do you play with the band? What what are you rotating through? Because you do play so many different things. Yeah. So um, I'm I'm playing I'm playing guitar mostly guitar and violin and banjo. So on the records, um, on the records, mostly guitar. I do play. I play I play mostly acoustic, um, but I also uh, play a Fender Strat, and um, I've got this guitar that. I had built, um, there's this little company in Berkeley, California that, um, they just, they bought the old, when the Dan Electro factory closed down, Dan Electro, I think used to be up in NorCal. When the Dan Electro factory closed down, they bought all the parts, the unassembled guitars. Mm -hmm. And then since then they've been kind of slapping together these custom Dan Electro ripoffs. So, uh, so I got, I had one of those made custom and uh, I play a Fender Strat, and uh, and then our guitar player Zhang, he actually plays acoustic guitar at the show. Though he runs it through this uh, TC Helicon Voice Three Live mm-hmm. box, and uh, and then he runs it uh, through a Fender amp. So it's something you know. He's a, he's a salsa dancer, and a lot of times after the shows, he'll go to these salsa clubs. And we were in this salsa club one night, and there was a guy playing a nylon string guitar and he had it plugged into a fender tube amp and it just had this really cool sound so we kind of poured it over uh some of that to zang's rig and then um i have this uh guitar that's called a lore and it's a uh, pretty much a ripoff of um a gibson you know l7 arch top okay but it's got but it's got p90 pickup in it so um so i'm actually and it's got a p90 pickup in it and then i put a bridge pickup in it so I'm able to do like a stereo. So I'm getting the bridge pickup, which is a separate bridge that, that I installed in there, which is basically a lot of times we'll do for, for these archtop guitars. We'll just we'll swap out that archtop bridge. But then I also have the P90 pickup. So I'm getting, uh, I'm getting like a left, right blend between the P90 pickups and then the, uh, the, the pickup that is part of the bridge on the archtop. That's really cool. So, yeah, and then uh, on this last on this last tour with American Authors, I was playing this '64 uh, Jag mm-hmm. through a uh, Fender Fender Deluxe, uh, also I think it's late '60s, and that was a rig that um, American Authors uh, guitar player Zach had that he was doing for theirs. We were doing this combined set where it's like we would play we play a five song we play five songs, authors plays five songs, then we all get up and, and like do like a big band thing. So it was pretty cool. So it was actually, um, really inspired by, by them and, and, and their guitar player, Zach. So, uh, so yeah, it was 64 Jag. Uh, I was basically, I'm basically playing it with just, uh, you know, a touch of reverb and then the crunch of the amp and compression. I usually, uh, use, use compression, uh, at the live shows just to kind of even it down. They use this, uh, Joe Meek optical compressor, okay. which is something that they, something that they made in a rack mount, but they also made a pedal version of it, which is exactly the same thing. And, uh, so I've been using that for, for years. And it's, it's one of those pedals that you don't necessarily, it's like you miss it when it's gone, but you don't necessarily hear it. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, if you turn it off, it's like, Oh yeah, it's way better with it on. But it's not doing anything. It was just very, it's just optical. I mean, it's compressing it, but it's a very it's a very transparent compression. Um, so that's so that's the person to chain. 
And uh, everyone in the band, uh, we use wireless rigs, uh, even for the guitars and you know violin. Everybody's everybody's wireless, uh, so we use these like uh, these Shure wireless rigs, which can have their you know on this last tour the uh, the the RF frequency thing was definitely a was definitely a challenge because we had we were playing with like basically a ten piece band. Everyone's on wireless RF and mics and in ears, and it was like a smorgasbord of uh, of frequencies. But that was one thing since the since the start of the band is we all were been wireless uh because we can move around stage and then we can actually take uh austin the singers and guitar the other guitar player myself we can we can go out in the crowd and just basically bring austin's wireless mic and get like you know 300 feet in the crowd and play from any play anywhere in the venue or festival yeah in videos you guys like to get out there and party with the people yeah there's you know there's this there's this third wall that that's created between the uh between the the audience and the and the band and you, if you just poke it, you can just poke the wall and then it crumbles, you know? So a lot, of, so halfway through our set, we, we, we try to look around and if it's, and if it's a situation that it can work, you know, we try to go out in the crowd and play a song or two out there. And then when we get back on stage after it, it's like, you can, you can feel it in the room. It's like, there's been a shift. It went from us and them to all of a sudden it's everybody. And it's a powerful thing. It's a small thing, but it's something that we always really like to do. I think it's cool. I, I really like it. I've only experienced it a handful of times with, and it's generally mostly the singers because uh, a lot of the bands I listen to, they got big old pedal boards and rigs and cords and cables. So, but I've, you know, the, I've watched the Bronx do that, come out in the crowd. And uh, back in the day, I remember Frank Carter from Gallows coming out in the crowd uh, and it was just, I don't know, it, it does, it changes the energy. It just changes the whole vibe of everything. And it's, I don't know, I kind of love it. So it's a cool yeah, that you guys are that's able to do that. Yeah. I mean, and we, and we still have the pedal boards and we still got the whole, we got the whole chain. It's just, you know, you just got to throw a wireless pack in there man. Mm-hmm. and then you're not, then you got a pedal board. And as long as you're happy with the tone you have as you exit the stage, <laughs> then, and it can carry you through the duration of your endeavor then you're good. You know, mm-hmm. one of the things, uh, as far as gear and tone that we did on our first record, um, and we're working on our second record right now. And, uh, we have a song called disaster party, which is our current single. And, uh, it's, it's, we're in a radio campaign for it. And, uh, that's what we've been touring around and that's what we're still doing a lot of work around. And, uh, so that's disaster party. That's right now. But our first record, one of the things that we did is we recorded, we built a, a, a solar powered mobile recording studio out of a sprinter bus. What? And, um, along a festival tour, we made stops and recorded in nature. So we recorded in the, uh, redwoods of Northern California inside of a redwood tree. on one of our songs called Jade, uh, we played the guitar and the violin parts inside inside the tree, which is about the size of a recording of a large recording booth in there. And it is the sound that people go for in the studio. when you want that kind of like, not too, you know, it's not dead. It's not too live. It's warm. You hear the tone of the instrument and maybe a touch of the room. That thing that people hang foam all over their apartments to achieve mm-hmm. is actually just ready and waiting for you inside of a redwood tree. That's so that's, cool. That's what you get. Yeah, it doesn't have a bad frequency inside of it. So, you know, there's all these acoustic anomalies that 
that occur in nature. And since we are a live band and we are a festival outfit and we do a lot of music festivals, we just decided uh, on the summer we were making our record instead of playing the club dates in between the festival dates to just basically book time in nature. So we did, uh, in, in Washington state, we did, uh, Snoqualmie pass. There's a, a two and a half mile tunnel that, uh, can go into and it has this super long echo reverb thing so we basically pulled the pulled the the bus up to the end of the tunnel ran you know we had a ton of wiring and cabling we brought all our preamps we brought microphones and you know it was it was a really intentional experience and and you know we recorded like all the gang vocals for the record inside of that inside of that tunnel so you can't take the reverb out because it's part of the recording but it, it forces you to kind of commit and i think it was also in some ways in the spirit of the recording was, you know, that spirit of adventure and kind of honestly being on a, being on a road trip with your, with your buddies and your, and your people and making these stops. We also did, uh, in call in marble, Colorado. Uh, we were playing a festival and, uh, the guy we were talking about the festival. He's like, yeah, I got like a little, uh, you know, fishing cabin or whatever in marble, which is like a couple hours from here. So we went down to his spot and it was like, yeah, a little airstrip for like little prop planes and a little cabin. And we just recorded outside on this airstrip in between uh, these huge mountains of pure marble, which is actually the marble that they used for like the Washington Monument and all the things in DC. Marble, Colorado is like where they got a lot of these things. So we were just out there pretty much crash camping and recording, um, you know, outside, which has some challenges, you know, because there's wind, there's birds, there's things. Sometimes the birds are perfect for your recording because they chirp at the right moment. Other times you need to try to get the birds out of your recording, which is <laughs> kind of hard. Um, but the whole thing was kind of a tone adventure, right? It's like you have the songs, you've written them, and, you know, you can record, you know, people always say, hey, the music business has changed. Now you can record from your house. Yeah, but you can also record from like a villa in the south of France, right? Bring Right now I'm in, uh, I'm in Lake Tahoe uh, on the Nevada side. And, you know, I brought up here with me a rig, which is a Universal, Universal Audio Apollo X8 with a UAD2 satellite to give it extra power. Then I got some cheapo speakers that I was okay to, to throw in a box uh, from our, our home in Los Angeles and a little MIDI trigger. I got a SM7, I got a 58, and I got this like you know Audio Technica kind of condenser if I need it. And you know now I'm I'm in Lake Tahoe and uh, we're we're still working on the record. And here I am. So you can kind of do that, which is a really awesome element to modern recording. I think it's really valuable if you can. If, you, if new artists can understand and learn how to engineer and, you know, work in Pro Tools and or Logic or, you know, Cakewalk or whatever you like, because um, it's really empowering. You know, you can, things can happen. Like, you know, our tours got canceled, you know, with the pandemic. We were supposed to be out on another bus tour. And then I think we were playing a music festival next weekend. I mean, we had all this stuff. And on our calendar, we have like everything that we were going to do before the pandemic is still there, except it just has like a little X mark. Right. And we just left it up there because you can, it's kind of nice to look at your phone and be like, huh, I would have been in Tulsa. Huh. I would be playing bottle rock. There's like all these like things as you go. So we left it up there on the calendar with a touch of nostalgia. So it's pretty awesome that, you know, the tours are canceled, but because, because the band has the ability to record and make records, we can all kind of be in our, 
in our separate worlds and, you know, still work together. So right now we're working on this record, almost like a postal service situation where we do parts of it and everyone's got their own home rig and then we hop on a call and kind of work through it. Yeah. That is, we're still recording. That is a, a beauty of, of the, I mean, everyone points to this because it's true, but like Billie Eilish's record was recorded in her bedroom, you know? And so that is the, the, the flexibility that we have with this modern gear and the quality of it, you know, the, you know, you can get a decent interface for not that much money and it's going to sound pretty good. Like, yeah, it's absolutely, it's really incredible what we're able to do now. Um, especially thinking think back in the day, you know, I had this massive Yamaha digital recorder that I had no idea how to work and I was so excited, but we literally couldn't do anything with it because it was so confusing. And now it's just like, of course. all right there. It's magical. Of course. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think the kind of what can become the tricky part is, you know, people can just overproduce it, which I think because they have the tools and all the sounds are there, you can kind of just make a, you know, just make a, a cluster, cluster F record. And one thing I think, well, Billie Eilish is a really good example of, of like constrained minimalism uh, because of the production style, you know, of her brother it's just like when you listen to her stuff, it's like, yeah, you hear him. He strikes the match, you know, 10 times. And that's one of his sounds, but then it's just that in her voice. So it's like, he's able to kind of craft the sound around those bedroom minimalist qualities without, without cluttering the image and without taking away from framing the vocal, which I think can be a challenge for a lot of people who are producing in your bedroom because not everybody who's producing their bedroom, like Billie Eilish's stuff has this almost romantic bedroom quality where you just hear her voice and all of the instruments are so dialed in, in their place that it really is like, it's really engaging and compelling. But I think sometimes it can be tricky because you can also, you know, throw the kitchen sink at every recording you ever make and, you know, try everything and then see what works and you can end up with a really busy record. So I think with the technology, there's also there comes an element of constraint that uh, writers and producers have to have and the best ones do it for sure. Yeah, that's a hundred percent accurate. And I definitely f find myself in that category of trying to do too much. I'm a effects pedal junkie. And so I try to cram as much as I can and that's not always the way to do it. It's, it's just not, but yeah. I mean, one, one, one trick that I think a lot of producers do is like, you know, you're, you're, when you're making, you're making a record, uh, you know, a song, working on a song, it's like, you know, find some, find a couple songs that, that inspire you and then try to like, see if you can take those tones and, and apply it to the record and then realize that the record you are referencing is not a mess. It's very clean, you know, and kind of, you know, the best stuff is the simplest, you know, sometimes having, having the constraints, like when, you know, we were talking, I mentioned Bruce Springsteen earlier, but like he did the uh, the album Nebraska. Oh, he just had a four. Best. He just had a, one of the best. He just had a four track, right? So he had track one guitar, track two vocal, track three background vocal, and then track four. It's either going to be a tambourine or it's going to be one other instrument, right? Mm -hmm. And then he went and re and then he went and retracked that record with the E Street Band, and you know that's not what got put out because that was a clean thing that no one will ever hear that had Clarence Clements like Hoffman saxophone on Nebraska, which is just not what was, it's not what the songs demanded. So I think if you let the, the song dictate the recording, then uh, it can make it a little bit easier. Yeah. 
For sure. That is a, that is a perfect example. Cause yeah, a lot of people don't know that that was, that that happened. They were like, uh, actually we'll go with what you did in your kitchen instead. It's, it's going to work better. Yeah. He did it on a demo. He did it on a, a four track uh, cassette recorder. So they actually had to like get the lathe and make it bring it to vinyl and, like from cassette, which is interesting. Very. So, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think it's a great example of, of, of like, it's almost like Billie Eilish and Bruce Springsteen kind of figured it out with the, Nebraska and what what she's doing now. And, uh, you know, I think it can be a little bit more challenging, you know, with, with, with rock bands and with, with, you know, music where, you know, drums, bass, guitar, all those things is part of the sound of it, because then you really have to, every, everybody in the band wants to be heard, you know? So, and I think Magic Giant is lucky because Austin, Zang and myself were, we're all songwriters. So, you know, we, we kind of all bow to the song. Um, but we still, it's still something that, you know, we've been talking about lately and struggle with cause it's like, it's like, you can still kind of overcook something, you know? So I think on our new recordings, you know, my, my, one of my main, you know, focuses and, and, and cross that I will, you know, bear and a hill I will die on is like making the, making sure that the vocal and the, and, and the lyrics are all being framed by the production and never being overtaken or being distracted. I think that's a good, uh, a good way to go, man. Well, we are, Thanks, man. we're right there at the end of the podcast and I got a couple classic questions to wrap up on, but before I do that, this is your chance to kind of say whatever you want to say, plug anything you want to plug, or just if you have something you've been wanting to tell the world, this is a, a good opportunity. Okay. So, uh, we've been doing a Instagram festival called live from quarantine and, uh, we've done three so far and, uh, we've had artists like the Lumineers, Jason Mraz, uh, we had Glenn Hansard, we had, uh, the head and the heart, we had walk the moon, all kind of give their time and their talents to raise money, uh, with, Flexports uh, Frontline Responders Fund, which gets like PPE and uh, ventilators. It basically is like the the car the air cargo transportation aspect of getting medical supplies around the country. So um, so we've been working on that, and it's a really fun way to check out music. You can check out recaps from the first three, and uh, there'll be stuff on our social media, which is at Magic Giant, about the upcoming one and. We haven't announced the lineup yet, but it's going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be incredible. You know, we've been, and we've, we also had David Blaine come and do magic on the last one. Nice. And this is a, this is a new frontier we're in as far as, as far as live performances over social media, but we kind of just jumped into it, you know, as early as we could, uh, to get it started. Uh, so it's live from quarantine and, uh, you know, a lot of these artists, it was Jason Mraz's first time he'd ever done an Instagram live. And, uh, it was the first time David Blaine had ever done magic was, was on, was on magic giants Instagram page. So it's been really cool and really fun. And, uh, and, uh, disaster party is our current single and we are working on a new record. Uh, and you know, we have a music festival that is still on. It is the last weekend of September. It's called camp misfits. It's, uh, in the redwoods, uh, kind of by where, uh, in the, close to where we discovered that redwood tree where we recorded it's just the 
California, Northern California has been kind of a little bit part of the band ever since that recording. So we are coming up on our third annual uh, Camp Misfits, which is still on and the last weekend of September. So you can find all that stuff on our Instagram page at Magic Giant. It's also on Twitter and Facebook, all that stuff. It's, it's always just at Magic Giant. Very nice. That's really cool that yeah. you guys are doing that. I know you've actually had raised quite a bit of money already for that cause. So, you know, good on you guys for putting that together and all the artists coming on and doing it. That's really cool. Really awesome of you guys. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, a lot, a lot of it, I got to really give credit to our singer Austin Biznow because, you know, we all can't, it's, it's too hairy for us all to be on the live stream. So he's done such an incredible job of basically running the festival from his piano in, you know, Topanga Canyon, Los Angeles. And, you know, getting on the horn with, with Mraz like 10 minutes before and like going through how to hook it up. And so the days when their festival's going down, Zhang and I are, you know, on the WhatsApp thread and we're watching it and we're involved in doing it, but it's kind of like he's in maitre d' and he's in the hot seat. So I'm really happy with and proud of how well he's been doing kind of running that aspect of it. Very cool. Very cool. Okay. The classic questions to wrap up the episode. First one is what is your favorite boss pedal? I mean, I get the one that it's, it seems like too stupid, but uh, just the TU2 tuner pedal, because I am a, I'm like the guy in the studio who walks around with a tuner tuning musicians that maybe don't want to be tuned right before we start performing. <laughs> because I think, I think like being in tune, and this is something that uh, I really got into while composing because, you know, it's, if everything's in tune and it's all right, unless you're trying to do something out of tune for like a vibe, you know, like if everybody's in tune, it is like the most basic thing that some bands just don't do. And unless that's your vibe, like everybody just be in tune. And I think it's also, uh, being, being a violinist. It's like, I'm super, uh, I'm super like, you know, conscious of pitch. And, uh, if, if, are, if I'm playing the violin and the guitar player is not in tune, the violin sounds out of tune. <laughs> so I'm like, the, I'm like, yeah, it's like nobody plays the guitar player. It's like, oh, what's up with the violin? So it's too simple, but I'm sticking to it, man. TU2, baby. All right. Tuner. That's a lot of people's go-to. So it's not... That's so funny. I mean, it makes sense. It's a, it was a legendary pedal. All right. This is the last, and a, last question of the podcast and the most controversial. And uh, so we'll see how you do here. Okay. What is your favorite kind of pizza? Ooh, so it would be a, you know, it's, there's two, there's really two. There's like the, the classic pizza with the works, you know, pepperoni sausage, or cause I'm from New Jersey, you know, just those classic slices. If you can get the white pizza with the broccoli on top and then you add some of the red pepper al dente baby mm, i never i never delved into the broccoli that seems a little fishy yeah, it's fishy man but if you do it with the white and the broccoli you know and you're in new jersey and you're listening to bruce springsteen it all makes sense <laughs> it'll all come together i'll have to take your words for, do it that. for now but yeah, I, I uh do it. i'm starting to get a lot of pals from new jersey and so i need to get over there at some point so Anyway, shout out to New Jersey on this episode. Shout out. All right, man. Heck yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank this, you so much. It was a lot of fun. Hey, thank you. It was fun. Appreciate you, man. For Zambricki, this is Blake. And as always, folks, good luck and good tones.
All right, there we go. Another one wrapped up. Thank you for spending all that time with us. And make sure you check out Magic Giant. They are indeed a really cool band. A little different than my usual taste, but very talented, very, very good hooks, and a cool bunch of dudes, as you heard. And if you would like a little more of this conversation, you can slide over to patreon.com slash where Zambricki came on and hung out for a little while longer. We delved into some other topics, so that was a good chat. In fact, there are a ton of extra episodes over there for you, most of which are extended interviews with the guests. I'm posting up content there every week that only the patrons get, and it helps a lot. It helps a ton. So for five bucks a month, you get access to all those other episodes. So if you'd consider sliding over there and checking that out, it would mean a lot to me. Or if you can't, I understand, but share this podcast with a friend. That's a free thing you can do. And that helps immensely as well, because as you know, I get paid by the download by whoever you're about to hear talking at the end of this episode. And I don't know who it's going to be, but they pay me a little bit of money and a very little bit of money, like 0.0002 cents per download or something. It's pretty, it's like streaming, basically very comparable to a, what a musician gets for a stream, but uh, this is for an hour of content, so it's a little different. I don't know if I've ever talked about this before, but yeah, you're about to hear some ads, and uh, that is part of how I keep the lights on around here. So if you could share that with a friend, that would be amazing. All right, later, folks. One last thing before we totally sign off here, I just want to remind you that if you do any shopping at Stringjoy, that's Stringjoy Guitar Strings made in Nashville, that will help me out as well. As I've said for years, I'm heavily involved in that company, and I really do think they're making the best products on the market. So if you would like to try custom strings, go to tonemob.com stringjoy and check them out today. I seriously, seriously, seriously love what the team down there is doing. I help them out with all kinds of things, and by you supporting them, you are also supporting me as well. And hey, you need some strings, so why not get some custom strings just for your guitar and playing style? Again, the link for that is tonemob.com stringjoy, and that will take you right to their website, and you can do all your shopping through there, and that will help everyone involved out. So thank you very much. Talk to you next time. We are brought to you by the wonderful folks at Gun Street Wiring Shop. Yes, Gun Street Wiring Shop. I've talked about them before. I used to say based out of Bend, Oregon, but guess what? Sean moved to my neck of the woods. Sean's in Portland. Sean is awesome and has helped me with a bunch of stuff lately. And if you have wiring needs for your guitar, he can help you too. If you want to get weird with it, he can get weird. If you just need to spruce things up a little bit, there's your guy. He takes all the guesswork out of doing your guitar wiring, and he makes it simple and his customer service is top-notch, and I can't say enough good things about Gunstory as a company. I really respect Sean and what he's all about, and the product is top-notch. I've got three different guitars that now have Gunstreet harnesses in them, and I could not be happier. So go to GunstreetWiringShop.com and check them out.